0: So I want to talk some further about about metta, about loving kindness, um, and also talk about these five states that are so commonly described as the five hindrances, because we tend to have them. And it's always an interesting moment in planning a course, one where talking about the talk rotation and the scheduling like when to place the hindrance talk and tomorrow night always seems a little late actually uh in the beginning of our teaching in this country it used to be much later in the retreat now we began pushing it earlier (laughs) and earlier and earlier so um this is this tends to be its its place in the unfolding of things so first um some more about loving-kindness. As I said this morning, I think the best spirit to uh, consider in the practice of loving-kindness is that of an exploration or an experiment, that it is a, a process that's creative, that's challenging, that's rich, that's deep. And this flies in the face of conventional thinking, where it's quite easy to think of loving kindness as something sentimental and a little weak, maybe a little bit foolish. Um, One of the books that I wrote is called The Force of Kindness. And that was a a title suggested by the publisher, which I appreciated very much. um, And I thought really captured what I was trying to say and what I continually am trying to say, which is that It is so common for us to think of kindness or loving-kindness or compassion as kind of a secondary virtue. You know, if you can't be courageous and you can't be brilliant and you can't be wonderful, well then, eh, be kind, you know? It's like a little something, you know, not much, but... And yet the truth is, both for any one of us, it is a tremendously transforming quality, and for the world. It is a tremendously transforming quality. It's very healing and it's very powerful. It really is a force. So a lot of what we are challenged by in this process um, is our own ideas about things, what we're capable of and what we're not capable of, where happiness is to be found, where true safety is. Um, We're challenged by many issues of balance Loving kindness and compassion for ourselves and loving kindness and compassion for others. The wish to see someone free from suffering and our complete inability to control the unfolding of life. There are many ways in which we go very deep, not analytically or intellectually or theoretically, but through our experience. So it's, it's actually a very... Um, intricate, subtle, very deep and very demanding practice. On the surface it seems a little funny, like you just keep repeating some words, you know, and are you talking yourself into a stupor or some state or, you know, something that, that isn't very strong, that isn't very real, and of course it's not like that at all. And so it's an undertaking, it really is a journey um, as we unfold. And it said that Uh, The power, the force of loving-kindness is rooted in many things, two in particular. Uh, One is wisdom or insight. The more clearly we see the nature of life, the more clearly we understand where happiness is actually to be found. The more we understand the strength of a generous heart, because it is a practice of generosity. And most importantly, the more we see how connected we all are, the more we see this truth of interconnection, uh, the greater the loving-kindness will flow. And so this isn't artifice. It isn't um, something studied or self-conscious or self-righteous. It's because of a worldview. It's like a deep knowing that we are connected. And one of the things I appreciate so much about the time we live in is that it's not just a a spiritual understanding that brings us to this, but economics brings us to this, epidemiology brings us to this, any kind of environmental awareness brings us to this, that there's no there, there's no other that we can just dismiss or discount so that what happens over there Will not affect us over here. It's just not true. And what happens over here will affect what happens over there. And so we need to take care with our actions and what we dedicate our lives to because of this truth of interconnection. Now, of course, I have an association with the word um, because of my uh, practice, you know, because of spending so much time in in uh, buddhist tradition and and now the word is really getting used a lot in politics and economics and and every time i said sort of, oh <laughs> i know that word but it's i think from this vantage point that someone like the dalai lama has said as a concept as an idea war is outmoded it's outdated because it is based on the idea that what happens over there will stay over there and will not come back in some way. And we see it's just not so. One of the um, ways in which we practice loving kindness or deepen loving kindness is just by opening to this truth. It's like if you take just a few moments now and we'll do a reflection. If you just call to mind everyone who has something to do with your being here in this room right now. Everyone who gave you a book or read you a poem or told you about their meditation experience. You know, no one of us just appeared like out of the blue. We are all born here out of a combination of conditions this moment in time, all of us here together, influences and connections and relationships and interactions. Each one of us. And so we are here together. You know, and how many forms of life have been involved in the clothing that we're wearing right now? And the food that we've eaten today. You know, who planted those crops, and what creatures live in that soil, and who harvested it, and transported it, and sold it, and then, of course, the people who prepared it for us. Every experience we have is this confluence of the greater fabric of life. And so this this sense of interconnection is really at the heart of loving-kindness. It doesn't mean we like everybody. It doesn't mean we approve of everybody. It doesn't mean we invite everybody to move in to our apartment. But it's that knowing that what we call self and other or us and them is a creation and that if we look deeper we see this kind of intertwined reality that's really a very different basis for action. Now, sometimes people think from that perspective we get very weak. But in fact, it is tremendously strong because it's true. And on the basis of seeing the truth, we can act with great strength. So that's one of the um, main sources of a deepening or developing loving kindness. And the other is really what we are doing in the meditation practice, which is being willing to take a few risks with our attention. Being able to look at ourselves in a different way, look at others in a different way, look at life in a different way. It's not artifice, you know, and it's not make believe, and it's not phony or fake in any way, but it is stepping out of what might be most routine for us or most familiar for us or most um, conventional for us. And seeing what happens when we use our attention differently. So the example I like to use these days is, like, what if you were the kind of person who had the habit of, in an ordinary day of life, at the end of it, kind of checking back as though to evaluate yourself, as though to say, how'd I do today? And let's just say you're the kind of person who tends to, focus on, or even obsess about, or fixate on what went wrong. You know, what you didn't do most skillfully, the times that you spoke out and you wish you hadn't, the times you didn't speak out and you wish you had, let's just say. (laughs) You know, so at the end of the day, you are consumed with the memory of this really stupid thing you said at lunch. Not here, of course, because you didn't say anything, but (laughs) at home. So, you're just fixated, and it's almost like your whole sense of who you are and all that you will ever be just collapses around that really stupid thing you said at lunch. So, the perspective of loving kindness is almost one of saying to oneself, Anything else happened today? You know, anything good today? And again, it's not make-believe. It's not as though to proclaim, "Oh, wasn't that a brilliant and witty thing I said at lunch? Maybe it was really stupid, you know, and there are consequences to that. But that's not all that we are, ever. And so we step out of that fixation and just look from different angles, looking for the good, looking for other aspects, remembering impermanence, things like that. And then as we unfold the practice of loving-kindness, we look at how we pay attention. You know, How fractured is our attention? How fragmented? How many times are we talking to somebody and thinking about the next five phone calls we need to make or the last email that we sent? And just as we do here, it's a gathering process just to take all of that scattered and fragmented attention and just bring it together and be there. And then, of course, there is the question of who we pay attention to. Who do we ignore? Who do we overlook? Who do we look right through? Who do we discount? Who do we disregard? Who do we discard as we go through a day? And we use the vehicle in this practice of the phrases to include rather than exclude, to stop, to settle on, to pay attention to, rather than look right through. That's really the, um, the function or the role of the phrases is to allow our energy to connect, to allow our awareness to come from different angles, different perspectives, to make what is really a pretty radical experiment in awareness So there are many, many beings that we open to in a moment of recognition. Again, it's not that we like everybody, and it's certainly not that we approve of everybody, but there's a recognition there in that moment that our lives are connected in some way. And how many beings do we have some preconception about or bias or whatever so that you know maybe we're talking to them and we already decided long ago they're going to be pretty boring and so we're barely listening it's like we've taken their file and we've put it in the folder and we've put the folder away and then maybe we remember and we can like open up the draw and pull out the file folder and open up the file and listen that's all practice a practice of loving-kindness, is to have flexibility, resiliency, openness, or even playfulness with our attention, with our awareness. And that's what we are doing. So even though it's conscious and it means applying effort, it's not a, a grim and laborious and terrible kind of effort. It's really this tremendous willingness to step out, step back from our habits, and just to see what happens as we apply attention in these different ways. It's really what we're doing in our practice. And it takes effort precisely because it is somewhat unfamiliar often or it feels so different. What do you mean, you know, look for the good within myself or, or someone else? So when we say sometimes um, one of the prior reflections to the development of loving kindness is looking for the good in someone, just in the way I described, if you tend to fixate only on what's wrong, say with yourself, it takes some effort to see what happens if you look for the good, but it's not make-believe, it's just broadening the perspective. And so it is with others, there's a recommendation that we look for the good and that doesn't mean that we try to make believe it's all good either. But if we obsess about and focus on exclusively and fixate on what's wrong, we will naturally feel more frightened or more alienated, whatever it is. And if we can find one good thing about somebody, it doesn't have to be big, just to recollect, then what happens is not that we make believe the other doesn't exist, but that there's a certain feeling of a bond or a connection from which vantage point we can look at what's difficult and what's wrong, truly, but not with this tremendous gulf of self and other, us and them. So it's an experiment. And when I first went to Burma in 1985 to do loving-kindness practice, At one point, my uh, teacher, Saru Upandita, said just that to me. He said, you know, think of some people and see if you can spend a few moments just looking for the good in them. And my very first thought was, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) I thought, that's what stupid people do. They go around, they look for the good in everybody. I "I don't even like people like that who are going around looking for the good in everybody. I'm not going to do that. But as I usually tell the story, I was very far from home in a Burmese monastery. And the nature of the teacher-student relationship in a very traditional culture like that is actually not one where the teacher suggests you do something and you say, I don't feel like it. You do it. (laughs) So I did it. And much to my amazement, it was very profound. I thought of somebody right away I found quite difficult, actually. And then I had a recollection of an extremely kind thing he'd done for someone else. And he did it so well. You know, no um, feeling of being superior and kind of bestowing a favor on a lesser person. You know, it was like a beautifully done thing. And it was so funny because I watched my mind. I remembered it and then I thought, I don't want to remember that. (laughs) You know, like, let's put that away because that makes things a little more complicated. You know, it was easier when I could just, but that's the experiment just to see. And then, of course, there are times when that is completely unreal. We will not find something good about somebody. And there's another reflection that's done, which is uh, a very simple teaching of the Buddhas, which is that all beings want to be happy. Everybody just wants to be happy. And it is the force of ignorance. It's actually not knowing where genuine happiness is to be found that keeps us running and spinning and trying and making so many mistakes and often causing so much suffering for ourselves and for others but if we were to look deeply we would see that we all actually want the same thing and so it's a different perspective with which to view ourselves and and others as well so that's the kind of play of the mind and the heart in the practice of loving kindness, and that's what we've come here together to do. It doesn't obviate the first. We're deepening wisdom and intelligence and awareness at the same time, but the conscious effort is really in that willingness to change the way we use our attention. So very commonly in the process, and certainly reflected quite strongly in the common experience people have on retreat is that as we engage in this process, um, we have varying degrees of experiences of what are called the five hindrances. Um, They're called hindrances not because they're bad states or should be condemned or scorned. They're called hindrances because they tend to be quite seductive. And If we believe them utterly, if we fall completely under their sway, if we get consumed by them or identify with them as who we really are, then they tend to run us. And if they do, we move quite far away sometimes from that ability to really be flexible and malleable with our attention. We get stuck in some way. Getting lost in these states is one problem. Hating them, hating ourselves for having them, is another problem. And it's, it's really just um, they're both problems. So recognizing these states, even calling them hindrances, is not an invita- invitation uh, to having contempt for them. <laughs> or for ourselves but just to realize their nature and to understand that if we work with them skillfully they're actually very helpful if we get lost or if we simply do battle then they consume us you know and just the reason we see them so clearly and strongly in our practice is because they are so much of what this world is about and each of them in some way Um, is like a mistaken notion of where happiness is actually to be found, where strength is to be found, where clarity is to be found. Getting lost in them or fighting them, hating them, um, are equally problematic. But if we can see them for what they are, then we have tremendous freedom um, and energy uh, to be creative and to use our lives as a medium for are on growth and development. So these five hindrances, classically, are grasping, or clinging, aversion, which is anger and fear, anger and or fear, sleepiness, sluggishness of mind, restlessness, or agitation, and doubt. These are the five. And I, for one, was always tremendously reassured in my practice On retreat when somebody would talk about them because then I would think oh it's not just me you know the Buddha was talking about this 2500 years ago so this is like a natural um, and common sort of encounter with these forces so the first is greed or clinging or grasping. It's attachment or holding on. It's not the same thing, attachment is not the same thing as bonding or liking or feeling an affinity or feeling close to or caring about. It's a very particular thing, a very particular element of mind. It has uh, two major forms. One is a kind of obsession with what we don't have. And that's kind of poignant, isn't it? Because instead of appreciating what we do have, our attention is fixed on what's not here. And so there's a sense of incompleteness and wanting and um, a lot of restlessness in that. It's not a very uh, pleasant state, actually, when we look at it. And the other man- another manifestation is holding on tight to what we do have or think we have in an effort to keep it from changing. In other words, trying to wrest control over another person, a situation, an object. In the practice of loving-kindness, it often manifests as what a friend of mine once called metta with an edge. Like, may you be happy by tomorrow in the following 15 ways. Um, And it's kind of holding. I I do really think so often of loving kindness as a practice of generosity. And we all know that we can make an offering to somebody. And depending on where it's coming from within us, it's a very different kind of gift. Like we can give somebody a gift, and it's like, okay, thank me. Would you? You know? Or uh, what do you mean you haven't read it yet? Or it can be a freely given gift with the, the joy in the giving. That's the relinquishing, the letting go, the offering. They're very different. We all know that just from life. And so when we see attachment, it's not that it's bad or wrong. But um, I think it's quite crucial for us to be more and more aware of the difference between loving-kindness and compassion on the one side, and those states with an edge on the other. Because if we get forlorn, if we get overcome, if we feel bitter um, at not being thanked, at not resolving someone's suffering, at not being in control, this is where it's born. You know, So it's the root of so much suffering. And so much dis-ease. We want to make a difference, and we should try. And it's not our universe to control, unfortunately. It's how it actually is. And so the attachment is something that weakens us and has us put often tremendous conditionality on our ability to be present. You know this is what we talk about as conditional love. Like I will love you as long as you love me in return or you say so in this way or uh the following 15 conditions are met. I was once teaching and I used that example and someone in the group was so riled up they called out only 15. You know so I will love you as long as the following, however many conditions are met. And it's not that that's a bad state, again, but it's so fragile. I will love myself as long as I never make a mistake. You know, how soon is that going to go away? You know, so something that fragile, that brittle, that dependent on things being a certain way, that dependent on a control that will never be real cannot be the same as actual loving kindness. And so we experience a lot of attachment as we look within, clinging and grasping and holding on and all kinds of things um, as just a natural part of this process. And then, of course, there is aversion, which is anger and fear. And in many ways, aversion is the direct opposite of loving-kindness. In the uh, tradition of Buddhism, they say that the Buddha taught loving-kindness as the antidote to fear. It's almost as though if, in general, we find we have been coming from a place of fear in what we do and what we say and what we refrain from doing or saying, and we do a practice like loving-kindness, we will find that in general our actions will be born from a state of connection, of feeling connected. That we will be responsive to that sensibility, that sense inside that our lives have something to do with one another. And so it's almost as though the Uh, process of deepening or developing loving-kindness will replace the habitual emphasis on coming from a place of fear. And because there is like a transformation or transmutation, that's one of the reasons that loving-kindness as a way of being in the world starts to seem natural. You know, it's not a decision one is necessarily making. Like, I hate this neighbor, but I'm going to smile because, after all, I went to Barry for a week and, you know, have to act like it made a difference. You know, it's not like that. But the um, kind of the measure of the fear and its its way of overcoming us, it shifts, it changes, because we've really developed an alternative. Um, as we do this practice. So anger and fear are considered the same state in the Buddhist psychology, just two different forms. Uh, Anger being the outflowing, expressive, energized form, fear being the held-in, frozen, imploding form of just the same state, of striking out against what's happening, wanting to declare it to be untrue. And the promise, which is a very empty or hollow promise, of certainly anger is that we have the feeling that it will help us be very strong, that it will embolden us. But it's a very complex state really. If we use mindfulness to look directly at a state of anger, we see it's not really, generally speaking, one thing. You know, it's moments of sadness, and moments of anguish, and moments of rage, and moments of fear, moments of helplessness. It's a very complex system. And if we look at it directly like that, we see all those different strands and all those different elements. None of them feel good, you know, none of them sound good. I'm sure if somebody gave you a questionnaire on your way in here, and said, what would you like to experience in this hour of sitting? You probably wouldn't check off moments of anguish and moments of fear, moments of sadness, moments of rage. But that's an alive system. There's something vitalized and, and alive in that. It's not stagnant. It's not just one thing. It's not congealed. And as we pay attention to it, we see that it's actually very painful. And so instead of disliking ourselves, For those feelings or uh, hating ourselves for those feelings, we can have a very genuine compassion for ourselves for those feelings. It doesn't mean we succumb, it doesn't mean we lash out, but we have a kind of tenderness for ourselves that's different. And as we practice toward ourselves, so too that becomes the basis for how we pay attention to others. The Buddha said, um, very famously said, I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. Uh, One friend of mine who's quite witty once said, well, suffering and the end of suffering are two things, not one thing. (laughs) But our question really is, where are they one thing? (laughs) Where is the acknowledgement of suffering also the end of suffering? Um, And part of that is in, being able and willing to name something painful as painful, which is not so easy, Uh, and part of it is using that notion of suffering and the end of suffering almost as a kind of grid with which we look at the world so that instead of calling things bad and good, or even right and wrong, we see Actions, mind states, as either leading to suffering or leading to the end of suffering. So we have a different relationship to them. We see our own anger and fear and greed and jealousy, not as bad and wrong and terrible, but as states of suffering. And so we can have some compassion for ourselves as the beginning of whatever action we may choose to take. It's very common, you know, as I talked about, I guess, yesterday afternoon, you know, being here on retreat, very little sensory stimulation, going deep within for emotions and feelings like anger to come up with a bang, you know? It can get quite intense, surprisingly so, many times. and as I said, you know, we, we have a, a sort of joking phrase for it where we call it yogi mind. You know, somebody jostles you in the lunch line or the worst happens and they sit on your cushion, you know, or who knows what terrible ordeal you may be put through, you know, by someone's action and, and you know, and you hate them. <laughs> And then you hate yourself for hating them. You think, damn it, I've been here two days, you know, sending loving-kindness. But it's common, you know, we touch upon all kinds of um, triggers and events, and it's not a bad sign, it's actually our opportunity to develop some compassion for ourselves in the face of these feelings that may be churning. It's really not a bad thing. The question always is, how do we relate to these states? You know, do we grab onto them and say, yes, you know, this is who I really am? Forget everything else that's come up. Do we get subsumed in them, defined by them? You know, first I'm going to write them a note and tell them They walk wrong, then I'm going to write them another note, (laughs) which is one possibility. Or do we, you know, go to the other extreme and just condemn ourselves endlessly for that, you know, in this litany of blame. I can't believe I was angry. It's been two days. You know, why did I come here? I'm only angrier than I was before. Maybe that other thing is better. You know, well, that won't work either because I'm just an angry person and I always will be. Or we have another possibility, <laughs> which is to use both mindfulness and, and loving kindness in recognizing, okay, this is what's happening right now. To acknowledge it, to feel one's way to a more balanced relationship with that state. Let it go. You know, to have some compassion and kindness for oneself in the experience of these states. Not to call them bad or wrong, but to have, you know, a very genuine uh, kind of tenderness of the heart toward ourselves. Okay, so the second hindrance is aversion, which is anger or fear. The third is sleepiness or sluggishness, sometimes called in the... um, Buddhist tradition, sloth and torpor, and it comes from many places. Uh, sometimes, as you know, I said earlier in the retreat, we're just very tired. You know, we're so fatigued, and we don't even realize it until we come to a situation like this, and we just stop for a while, and then we feel the the depth of that. So that could certainly be the source of that kind of sluggishness. Sometimes it comes um, from being kind of bored. You know, uh, in many ways, you know, as I said earlier, we do rely on intensity often for a feeling of being alive, intense pleasure or intense pain. And when something's just kind of ordinary or neutral or... You know, it's not riveting uh, and it's not terribly challenging in its, in its pain. We just go to sleep. You know, it's just a habit of numbness, um, of sleepiness, of tuning out, of disconnection when things are, are just kind of neutral. Sometimes we have a habit when things are challenging to basically say, I think I'll just take a nap. And a little later, you know, I'll deal. And so it's a kind of cocoon where we think, I'll just tune out a bit. Um, You know, so that can be a habit. And sometimes the very strong experience of sluggishness or sleepiness in our practice comes from just a a need to rebalance energy. There are many, many balances, as I've said, that we work with in practice. One very classic. One is between tranquility and calm, relaxation, concentration on the one side, and energy, interest, wakefulness, aliveness on the other side. And both aspects are very strongly being developed in meditation practice of any method. And... They're not always in balance. So sometimes the kind of calm, cooling out, deepening concentration side of things is much stronger in any given phase, you know, for the energy that we have cooking at that moment. And so, first, we go into the state which um, is classically known as sinking mind. I call it the ooze. You just kind of ooze along. And, you know, if it deepens enough, you do go to sleep. Now, in doing uh, insight meditation or mindfulness practice, one can ooze for quite a long time because you're just sort of with the breath and it's like a little bit like a lullaby. And you may not even quite realize um, what's happening until you really fall asleep. In loving-kindness practice, that can also happen, Uh, but there is a tendency, because it's more active as a practice because it's so verbal, you have the phrases um, to get signals earlier that you're falling into that kind of sinking mind. For one thing, that's the place where the phrases tend to get garbled. So that sometimes, like in Burma, I would hear myself say, may you be filled with suffering, maybe filled with... And I go, no, may you be free of suffering. And then several of you have heard me tell this story, I'm sure, but my favorite story about that is um, when a friend of mine from Switzerland was sitting here uh, one year, and English is literally, I think, his fourth language. And he told me that his phrases were something like... Um, may I be healthy and well, may I live with ease. And one day as he was sitting, he heard himself say, may I be wealthy in hell, and may I live with eels. And he just kept saying it and saying it and saying it. And then then he thought, that sounds a little off. And then he sort of traced back through his languages and got to oh that's wrong you know so that's helpful actually that's good feedback for us that we're like oozing along uh, before we actually fall asleep you know and certainly if the sleepiness or sluggishness is coming from that last where we actually are deepening concentration and tranquility we don't want to lose that but more pick up energy you know so that it's a better balance again it's not a bad state but it could be a better balance and so in that situation, you might really try to get a much clearer sense of the object of of the loving-kindness um, to make it uh, more real in a way, to aim the attention clearly toward just one phrase at a time. Just this. Um, that sense of very strong aim will also help clear some of the clouds. and And then they're all just the uh... kind of physical ways of trying to bring up energy you know which we've talked about a little bit before sit up straight or maybe open your eyes you can stand up uh... it might be time to do some walking um, you know depending on your situation or if you're here in the hall or not and, uh, but at home that could be a signal for for all of those things and i was saying it in one of the groups that i had um, in one of the many lists that exist within the Buddhist teaching, there's a list somewhere of ways of dealing with sleepiness, including all of this, you know, right aim and open your eyes, and, and stuff like that. And the last thing on the list is take a nap. <laughs> and I always noticed that it was on the list and also noticed it wasn't the first thing on the list. <laughs> you know, so with a kind of good-hearted effort that feels free, you know, not punishing, um, you know, we tried different things to change the balance, uh, in our being and if nothing works, take a nap. Okay, so then the next hindrance is, uh, kind of the energetic opposite of that and that's restlessness, where we might have a lot of energy cooking and very little calm or collectedness or tranquility in comparison we have a lot of energy sometimes it's physical and people just feel like they're going to jump out of their skin you know a friend of mine told me she was sitting in a hall I think it was about this size or bigger in Sri Lanka and she was the only person in the meditation hall and she got so restless like say she'd start out in that corner like after two minutes she'd have to get up move her cushion like to the back corner, sit down. Three minutes later she'd get up and she'd move over there. She said she thought like within a sitting she sat in every spot one could sit in in the hall. Sometimes it's just so strongly physical and sometimes it's not so physical but it's more mental um, or psychological. Our minds jump into the future and and we plan and we plan and we plan and we plan and we plan. And then maybe the bell rings and we come back and sit and we plant and we plant and we plant the same thing. You know, it's just like the energy is wonderful, but it's so ungrounded at that time that, you know, it's just um, spinning out. Or our minds go to the past and we go over and over and over and over and over over something uh, where we were not so skillful or so helpful in what we did or or what we said. And here there's a kind of interesting distinction that's sometimes made in the Buddhist psychology between what we call remorse and what we call guilt. Remorse being a genuinely painful recognition of having, in a way you could say, like broken the harmony somewhere, hurt ourselves or hurt someone else. Um, And we feel the pain of that. There's a beautiful saying of the Buddha's where he said, um, If you truly loved yourself, you'd never harm another. And sometimes in those moments of recollection, that's what we feel, you know, was leading us on in some particular action. It's very painful to recollect, but we feel the pain of it in a way we can forgive ourselves and recapture our energy with a determination to move on and not to be the same way, not to act the same way again, because we've learned some things, we've developed some insight. It doesn't mean there's no pain in the recollection, but we don't get stuck there. Guilt, in contrast, is a state where we do get stuck there where we go over and over and over, whatever it was we did or what we said, and we don't have in that moment the same ability to move on with the determination to be different. and Because we're so stuck, um, and it's so exhausting. It's not considered a very beneficial or, or skillful or useful state. We need to actually be able to, to move in some way. And it's very common. In meditation practice, it's almost part of a kind of purification I think we all go through that we can have a lot of recollection of things from the past, you know, where we need to be careful not to be lost in a state of guilt, but to have great compassion for ourselves and and be able to move on. Sometimes I tell the story about being in Burma practicing. And my friend Joseph Goldstein was there. And the way that the, uh, what they called interviews (laughs) there, (laughs) went was that um, the teacher, Saira Upandita, would sit in the front of the room. uh, And you'd come up and talk about your practice. And whoever was next on the list would wait in the back of the room for you to be finished. And then they'd come up. and. Someone else would be waiting in the back of the room for them. So that meant you always heard someone else's story, uh, which was usually highly entertaining. <laughs> and Joseph was ahead of me. Uh, and actually, Ramdas was ahead of him, but Ramdas said he always wanted to hear what I was going through, so he'd wait in the back of the room and pretend to be taking notes on what. Upandita had told him. (laughs) So we had a little routine going on there. So Joseph was always ahead of me, and that was nice, because I could hear someone else's story beside my own. Um, And this was, I don't know, we were there uh, for like three months or something like that. So uh, one day Joseph came in to see Upandita, and I could just tell from his tone of voice he seemed kind of down. Um, And he said to Upandita, I had this memory from oh uh, thirty years before twenty five years before something like that, he said I had this really old memory from something I did twenty five or thirty years ago, which was really an awful thing to do, and it just came, and it was so painful to recollect it and uh, Upandita basically. Said to him what I've just been saying, you know, there's a difference between guilt and remorse, and you can feel the pain of it, but you also have to move on. And move on with even some joy in that determination, you know, not to be so careless or, or to be more sensitive or whatever. But the whole time I was sitting in the back of the room thinking, I wonder what he did. <laughs> you know, he would have been really young. Like, what could it have been? It sounds really bad. But we were on this silent retreat, so I couldn't really ask him. So months went by, literally. And then uh, we left Burma together on the same day. And we're having dinner in Thailand. Um, It was also our first dinner in three months. So we're having dinner in this hotel restaurant in Thailand. And I said, so? (laughs) Remember that day you went in to see Pandita, and you sounded so miserable about this thing that you'd done, what did you do? And he described this time, he was like 16 or 17 years old, and this girl had a sweet 16 party, and he didn't want to go, and so he didn't go. And then he found out that not that many people went. And she, of course, was in you know, so much pain and humiliation, and 25 or 30 years later, it came back out of nowhere. So then I was telling this story we were teaching together, Joseph and I, in August at in, uh, in Spirit Rock Meditation Center, and uh, I told that story as an example of the difference between remorse and guilt and moving on and so on, even feeling the pain of something. And it happened to be my birthday, and the staff was giving me a birthday party that night, and Joseph walked in and he said, I didn't really feel like coming. <laughs> he said, I'm really tired. But I figured, you know, 20 years from now, I'll be sitting like in my dotage somewhere, and it'll come back. Then I didn't bother to come to your birthday party, so he came. So this is what we actually are trying to engender. It's not avoiding what comes up, but it's relating to it differently so that we're not so stuck. And then just to finish the model, the last of the hindrances is doubt. Um, So we have grasping, aversion, sleepiness, restlessness, and doubt. Doubt is also um, very intricate, because there are many ways doubt in the Buddhist tradition is considered a very prized quality. Um, It is a tradition, after all, uh, based on the Buddha's saying, don't believe anything. Don't believe anything just because I, the Buddha, have said it. Don't believe anything because a great elder has said it. Don't believe anything because you've read it in a sacred text. But put it into practice. See for yourself what's true. And so questioning, wondering, investigating um, is really at the core of the Buddhist teaching. It's not just believing something, but it's finding out for ourselves what's true. So that kind of doubt is considered really extraordinary and wonderful and essential. There's another kind of doubt, which we sometimes call skeptical doubt, which is different than putting something into practice to see for ourselves what's true. It's more about separating ourselves from a process and kind of denying its validity without ever having taken a risk or given it a shot or or trying. Um, Nowadays, I guess we'd call it cynicism in a way uh, which is often a mask for fear, you know, that we ourselves will not be able to accomplish something. Therefore, we step out of it and say it's not worth having. Um, you know, in that kind of doubt where we feel stuck, we don't know how to take the next step. We don't know how to put something into practice because we're so lost in in disputation. Inside is not very helpful. It's like. Uh, instead of doing the practice to see ultimately what it might give us or not give us we step out of the practice is a stupid phrase why would doing this work i don't think it does work um or it's worked for 2500 years it could never work for me after all or whatever it might be it's not that those thoughts don't come of course they come but if we believe them completely, if we have them dominate us, then we just stop. And so instead of making the experiment, we've pulled away from it. It's like in my very early practice, um, my first teachers were all either Burmese or had practiced in Burma. And then pretty quickly, I met within, five or six months, I met other teachers who were Tibetan, um, who taught quite a different method of practice. And I couldn't decide which to do. So when I would sit in meditation, in effect, I didn't do either. Because I would just sit and think about which to do. Should I do this or should I do that? Well, that one seems quicker. After all, those people seem more enlightened. But then I know these people better than I know those people. If I knew those people as well as I knew these people, maybe they'd seem less enlightened. Should I do this or should I do that? I don't know. Which is better? Which is faster? So in effect, I did neither. And one day, I just said to myself, just do something. (laughs) It doesn't have to be a lifetime commitment. But for like a month, (laughs) you know, Just do something so that the resolution or the answers or the revelations are coming from an experience, not just from being lost in thought. And so it's inevitable. It is certain that doubt will arise. And it's good that it arises, even if it's the second kind of doubt, the speculative doubt. But relating to it in a way to see it for what it is, to have enough of a sense of, okay. I have six more days or five more days or whatever it is. I'm just going to do it. Let me really evaluate and assess later. Something like that. Not to discount the validity of the doubt, but it's basically saying, not quite now. You know, let me really try to see what happens from a a very um, un- uh, mitigated, not fragmented, wholehearted application of my effort of my being to this process and then we'll see that's the great experiment. Okay so let's sit together for a few moments. Thank you. We'll have a walking period now, and then another sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.